welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge with Richard Helpy. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. And welcome to The Common Bridge. We're in week 10 of the COVID-19 lockdown in most parts of the country, and while some states are relaxing their restrictions, we're still using a virtual studio here at The Common Bridge. So if you can bear with Rich as he welcomes his guest remotely again, and that guest today is Dr. John Haller. Dr. Haller is a clinical research scientist who has held faculty positions at Washington University School of Medicine and the University of Iowa College of Medicine. He also served as health scientist administrator at the NIH, the National Institute of Health. Currently, Dr. Haller works as a clinical research program manager for a medical imaging company, managing CT and MRI clinical imaging research programs at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. Now, just as in all of our podcasts, the views of our guests are their own, and they don't necessarily reflect those of their employers or their associates. I think you're going to find this conversation enlightening, and we join Rich and Dr. Haller's conversation in progress. John, it's been a you know, great conversation this morning, talking with a real scientist, trying to make some sense out of this coronavirus pandemic. You and I have chatted about this in various forms. We, I think we both agree there's still that more is unknown than known. Not sure where we stand in a, this nine-inning game, uh, but I know our listeners would really appreciate uh, some of your insights. One of the things I've been wondering about is this, what do we know about the origins of this virus? I, I know there's a theory about it being in a wet market. There's a competing theory about it being manufactured. Have we reached any degree of certainty at this point about where this thing came from? Well, uh, you know, as you and I talked about, Rich, the, the wet market in Wuhan is one of the leading theories about where this originated. It jumped from an animal to a human. So probably from a bat to a person, but it, it could have jumped from a bat to a pig to a person. A lot of these kinds of uh, viruses uh, start out that way. They start in animals and then jump to humans. Um, so that's the sort of the leading idea. Um, I would say that there's really no evidence, at least in the scientific community, there's really zero evidence that it, that it originated in a lab in China, which is another uh, idea out there. Is, is there a way that the virus itself can be examined and say, you know, it doesn't have the characteristics of a manufactured virus versus it has the characteristics of, of one that originated in a an animal? And I know I'm going to mangle this terminology, zootonic. Is that the correct way to say? Zoonotic, I think it's okay. pronounced. Um, so like a zoo from the zoo. Uh, yeah, so there's, you know, it's it's been well known that, that these viruses originate in animals. That's That's been something that's been studied for decades. Or, uh, uh, and I think, and I'm not a molecular biologist or an epidemiologist, but my understanding is that there are ways of knowing uh, if, if uh, the genetic makeup, for example, of, of the virus is manipulated, they can know that from you know certain markers in the in the RNA or DNA or something like that um so so there's no there's no scientific 
evidence. And I think there's some uh, literature out there in the, in the scientific community that, that reinforces that. And, and my friends who are molecular biologists or geneticists would, I think, uh, support that. So I think the general consensus is that there is no evidence that, that this originated in a lab in China. There's no scientific evidence. And, you know, what do we know about the transmission? And one of the things that I was fascinated with is that early on, and I guess it's debatable what early was it, October, November, December, January, but someplace in there, scientists were real confident, hey, we've got something that's going worldwide. They were right about that. How do they know that? It, to me, it was a, it was a fascinating prediction that, that proved true. Well, you know, as you know, Rich, there's the, the epidemiologists have been studying epidemics for a very long time, and they've actually modeled these kinds of uh, pandemics as late as six weeks before this pandemic broke out. There was a, a conference where they, they modeled or predicted or re- actually rehearsed an actual outbreak like this and how it would overwhelm the healthcare system. The simulation that they went through actually at Johns Hopkins University, and I think you know there were scientists from around the country and, and from the government as well who were involved in this conference, modeled this thing and, and, and made these predictions. And, and, the, and the predictions, of course, were much worse because they were trying to model the worst case scenario. So uh, they they really understood this for a long time and, and have been thinking about the possibility of a flu pandemic or, in, in this case, a coronavirus pandemic, some kind of pandemic that was both airborne and deadly. That makes you know a lot of sense to me that if we weren't in the public health field or we weren't an epidemiologist, we'd just may not be thinking about it, but somebody does, or many people do, and they looked at this one and they go, "Uh uh-oh, here it comes. I know that we've got a wide range of symptoms. Uh, We've got infection rates that are still a mystery, still chasing those down. We have uh, treatment protocols that are still being developed. We have vaccines that are in early experimenting, and, you know, we still don't know today just how the antibodies work. Uh, in fact, I've read just this morning that some of the sailors on one of our aircraft carriers got a second infection. And I know people that have had it that are fine and then show symptoms again. Mm-hmm. So it seems that the, the, the degree that the disease progress is really still being mapped. Yeah, uh, but w- one thing I wanted to mention that I that occurred to me is that there's a there are um, metrics for the spread of the disease. So you've probably seen or read about this R not R zero yes. measurement. Yeah. Yes. So so you know they they uh, the epidemiologists talk about this number if it if it drops. Below one, then this, then it's likely that uh, a virus would stop spreading. If it's above one, like it often is in the flu season um, or with diseases like measles, you know, the number is very high. It's a highly contagious disease. Um, it's up around 15, I think. 
in this case, they've estimated this R0 uh, to be around 2, which means for every person that gets infected, uh, two people, two more people get infected from that person. From those two people, four people get infected and so on. So that's kind of the general consensus. It could be higher. It could be low. It's certainly not below one because we see, still see the disease spreading. And and uh, I, I'd also mention that you know these efforts to mitigate or slow down the spread also reduce that number. Um, so the kind of social distancing uh, efforts actually reduce the number from if it's two or or higher than two down to some lower number. So the spread isn't quite as fast, and you know people talk about flattening the curve. That's that's what what's what's happening there. The spread is is less. That's been very encouraging to see. It was just a couple of weeks ago that we had case rates rising at an alarming rate. The rate of hospitalization was threatening to consume our capacity. We were short staffing and supplies, and in a few cases, threatening to use up all the beds. The testing at that time, was, which was only testing symptomatic people, was about 15% uh, positive, and there was little to nothing known about the treatments. Uh, if you remember at that time, there was a, a lot of anxiety around whether we were going to have enough ventilators, and now it's, I guess, becoming conventional wisdom that uh, ventilators are not terribly effective, and in fact, the people that get on the ventilators often don't get off. So, you know, from that point, where are we today? You know, I agree with you. We made mention that the social distancing, the hand washing, that has certainly had a positive effect. So, you know, good for the policymakers that set that up to flatten that curve. Where are we today? If you could characterize the infection rates and the hospitalizations and the like. Well, I think we've flattened the curve. You know, the the I think one of the worries was, as you know, that that the healthcare system would not would hopefully not become overwhelmed uh, because of the fast spread of this disease. We're at the flat part of the curve in in some places, in, in some states, in some communities. The the number of infections, the number of people who are becoming infected on a daily basis is actually declining uh, from day to day. So we're sort of, we're either in some places like where I live in Florida, we're on sort of the flat part of the curve. In Michigan, there's a rapid decline in, in the number of uh, cases and number of deaths from this disease. So uh, I guess it really depends on where, where you're talking about. You know, what part of the country or what what city you live in uh, in terms of where we are. And it seems that there's vulnerable demographics, vulnerable locations like uh, nursing homes, uh, meatpacking plants, prisons. You know, we had a group of uh, Catholic sisters here in Michigan that were all elderly, seven of them that succumbed to the disease. And uh, the senator from Pennsylvania's claimed that 69% of the deaths in Pennsylvania were in nursing homes. And of course, as you'd expect in any kind of a crisis, some mistakes were made along the way. And the you know discharging COVID active patients in nursing homes in New York, I believe that's accounted for about 25%. But are, are we taking the right steps with those vulnerable populations in the prisons and the 
nursing homes, the meatpacking plants to protect those folks? And what would be the right approach to demographics that perhaps are not at the same level of risk? Uh, well, I think I, I know where you're going with this, Rich, because you and I have talked about this. Um, so, you know, I think as far as the vulnerable populations or even communities or, or people who are, are at risk, um, I think one of the key things to mitigate the spread among them is, is testing. Uh, so people talked about testing, testing, testing. So they're really talking about diagnostic tests that can identify who is infected and then isolate those people from vulnerable populations in particular in, in nursing homes, but also in the workplace, for example. So in meatpacking factories or just in the office, you would like to know who among those people are infected so that they could be uh, isolated from from others. Uh, most of the spread of the disease actually occurs within the home. Uh, so among family members or people who live in, uh, live among each other. But of course, they're not. They may, they may not get the disease at home. They bring it home from from their work or from some interaction with others who are, are infected in, in various settings. That's where the uh, vulnerable populations come in. The, those who are less vulnerable, as I think that's where you were going with this, are are you know people who are much younger. Um, children seem to be uh, less susceptible to the disease, although even children sometimes are affected. So some some kids with are developing this Kawasaki syndrome or some of the features of that syndrome, um, and then even even older people, uh, you know, f under 45 years old uh, can be hospitalized with this disease. So I think, and Rich, you may know better than I do, but I think something like 40% of the people in New York may have been in that, uh, that who were hospitalized were in, in that age bracket, you know, in the 45 years old or less. So there's so it does have an impact on those people, but it's it's much less, and uh, it's probably more like um, the, the flu uh, for that age group, 45 and younger. It's probably in terms of the the spread of the disease. It's probably more like a typical flu season in terms of the the R naught measurement or or um, you know measures of the spread. I uh, read this professor from uh, Dartmouth, Aaron Bromage, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but he had some very good data, and I believe we put a link up on our website, richardhealthy.com, and he goes through each of the settings, and as a non-scientific person, my takeaway was it's kind of a cumulative thing, so that you know, a light amount of exposure over a sustained period of time may result in an infection or a, you know, big dose like a sneeze, you know, one time event could get that same kind of exposure. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if you've read any of his stuff, but he concurs about in the home and he says, yeah, you're inside 
you're constantly being exposed to the infected person who more than right. likely doesn't know they, they're carrying the virus and you're breathing the same air, you're doing it over a period of time. That's and right. you know now the more health compromised person would be getting it. Is the way I'm reading it, again, I'm, I'm a non-scientist at all, but that's the, that was my lay takeaway from that. That's exactly right. That's how I read. I, I'm not sure I read the same paper, or, but um, I did read an interesting report, and I think you saw this too, about the idea that you have to get a thousand virus particles, whether it's a thousand or 5,000 or some other number. You know, you have to get, there, there has to be a certain, what my, you might call it, viral load. Um, before you actually get the disease. So uh, being in a confined space where there's no exchange of air, so being in a confined space in an office or a home, uh, you're more likely to breathe in a thousand viral particles. Or if, if you know, the, the one, one reason I think they talk about the six-foot rule for dis social distancing is, you know, if somebody's breathing in your face and you can actually smell their breath, um, that's going to have a lot more viral particles in it. And at some point, as I understand it, you reach a threshold um, where you've been exposed to so many uh, viral particles that, that, that you actually become infected. So those, those cases and those situations, I think you're at, at much higher risk. Whereas, you know, in the belt, uh, outside area or well-ventilated area, you're at much less risk. There's still um, people and, and virus around you but if if you uh, if you aren't heavily exposed to it, um, you're less likely to become infected. I would concur, and and if you read uh, Dr. Ramage's paper, it makes a compelling case about probably not quite ready to open bars and restaurants yet. Yeah, um, but also made mention that so few of the cases were contracted at the grocery store mm -hmm. uh, because you're you're in and out. Right, um, and also, you know, looking at New York, I, I think New York is a special case for many reasons. First yeah. of all, it's a very concentrated urban area. Yeah, um, and they were also on the front end of the pandemic when we knew a lot less and about what the right policy would be. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also a, a a Manhattan is a place where. Uh, people take public transport, the subways mm -hmm. and such, and they're walking on crowded sidewalks. So, yeah, it seems to me that would be pretty easy place to get that thousand particle exposure. Yeah, and then you know here in uh, you know Southeast Michigan, uh, particularly in Detroit, uh, we have uh, although we don't do much public transportation, we we do want everybody to buy a car, American made car. Thank you very much, mm -hmm. um, but. <laughs> It's also, we're a hub to Asia because of the automotive industry. Um, and we're also saw exposed that the social determinants of health coming into play here. So when you think about people that are uh, in uh, urban areas, lower income, that may already have diabetes or obesity or asthma, which is very common in a major industrial city, you can see why the virus found it so friendly. So, yep. you know, in looking at the policy responses, I think there were some that were done well, some that, you know, were made the best decision they could with, with the data they had. 
I know that we're going to seek to get cures and vaccines, although I don't believe there's a magic bullet out there that's going to solve this. I think it's, we're still going to be in th this uh, situation where we know something and we don't. We do have hospital capacity today. I, I did confirm that earlier this week in a, a number of places. And I, I also believe that we have the balance between the public health risks of the coronavirus with a public health crisis that's growing. Domestic violence, suicides, alcoholism, addiction on the rise. Uh, the number of people dying at home is skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the nearby counties to me, last month, eight times the number of people dying at home than in a normal month. And there's just untreated things from cancers and cardiac cases, diabetes, uh, dentistry, and, and even appendicitis. So leaving aside the economy, which I think is a false choice in some ways, and we can come back to that, but in understanding that we do have to conquer this virus at the same time, not put ourselves in another public health crisis. Are we at a point right now where some of the more strict stay-at-home orders might need to be revisited? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, you're asking about opening up uh, the state not having these stay-at-home orders. I think that's, that's happened in a lot of places already. But one of the things that our governor points out is that Michigan's the 10th largest state, but the third most in deaths. So the states that have more population than Michigan, but fewer deaths are California, Texas, Florida, New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Ohio, Georgia, and North Carolina. And some of those you might look at, say, Florida, which has twice the population as Michigan, but about a third of the deaths and say, well, you know, maybe there's something attributable to, you know, the climate. Right. But you can look at Ohio, which has about 15% greater population, but fewer deaths. And it's a lot more comparable, you know, in the upper Midwest as a Great Lakes state. And the approaches are vastly different. I mean, clearly things like mask, hand washing, distancing, all seem to have a role Perhaps letting the young and healthy get outside may have a, a role. And I'm just, you know, from a scientific point of view, if we want to combat this growing public health crisis and try to find our way through this pandemic, is there any policy changes that you maybe witness in Florida that it might be safe to try in Michigan or some of the other places? Well, I don't know. I don't know if I would try the, the things that are, that are being done here in Florida. I, I pretty much rely on the, the guidelines um, in my thinking. I, the, the guidelines to, uh, about um, you know, the different phases of opening up communities or opening up states. So, um, and I think you've seen a decline, a rapid decline in, in cases and deaths from COVID-19 in, in Michigan. Um, here in Florida, as I mentioned before, I think the, the numbers are pretty flat. The question here is, since, since the governor has opened up the state, you know, and we're, we're going into phase one, you know, are we going to see a resurgence? There's, it's really hard to predict. In, in fact, I would have predicted, might have even predicted a, a resurgence within two weeks of, 
of some of the uh, measures that have already been taken in Florida. So we haven't seen a resurgence here, but we've seen, you know, we haven't seen a decline either. Places like Texas, they've actually seen, uh, after opening up, they've seen a more than a 10% increase in the number of cases. So it's really, it might, maybe it's too soon to predict, or we don't know what all the variables are that affect these different places and, and in terms of of uh, relaxing these social distancing rules. I think that is an accurate summation. And, uh, you know, gosh, Florida, uh, you know, they actually closed the freeways coming in from Georgia and Louisiana. And, you know, we're restrictive about the people from the Northeast coming down. <laughs> and, you know, who knows? You know, John, let's take a, just a couple of minutes. Let's look for the toward the future a little bit. I know there's a lot of hope about uh, antibodies, and that perhaps a person that has suffered an infection knowingly or unknowingly, that they may have antibodies. What do we know about immunities from future exposure based on the antibodies? I think you've read some more recent reports than I have about this, uh, but based on, on other viruses, uh, that once you have an immunity, that that you know, you retain that immunity to the virus. Um, so that could last for years. Um, it could last for only two years. For some viruses, it might be short-lived because the virus can mutate. There's, this particular virus has a very slow mutation rate, which is, is encouraging because um, it's not going to change into a different strain that is suddenly uh, immune to these antibodies, or, or if a vaccine comes out, it wouldn't be, you know, immune to that vaccine. So that that's what I know. But you you also mentioned there was a sailor and maybe some other case reports where people have been become infected a second time. If if that were true, I would guess it's because you know their antibodies are no longer able to to fight this this virus if it's a mutation or, or whatever reason. Or or the other question is did it actually clear from the body? Yeah. That's yeah. And I know that some of the these blood plasma infusions uh, that they're working on here, uh, they show that the patient would get kind of an immediate rebound um, yeah. but then relapse. That so, makes sense. Yeah, that that makes yeah that makes sense. It, it, in fact, yeah, you probably read about this too. In, in children, it seem, seems like uh, those who are uh, suffering from this Kawasaki syndrome or other uh, maladies that are associated with COVID nineteen infections, those those things appear very uh, late after exposure to the virus. I think. And uh, in my mind, it, uh, I, I think what you might be describing is, is uh, you know, the person's ability to, to fight the disease, which really is related to the antibodies in their system and to the immune system itself. You know, how healthy is their immune system? So I guess, I guess you, could have, you could still have the virus present and maybe, maybe there would be some kind of rebound like you described. I did read a... a, a an article that said the viral load in in children is very low, and I'm guessing that that's because you know they are able to fight this 
this virus and it doesn't reach uh, a level that's that's really uh, dangerous as it is in, in older people. I'm wondering about medication and mm-hmm. you know unless at some point in the future we find a vaccine, but if somebody becomes symptomatic, and I know that there's experimentations going around with various compounds and some experimental drugs. Anything that you're aware of that looks promising in terms of treating those that have the symptoms? I don't know anything off the top of my head. I know that there are there are a number of, of drugs in clinical trials. I haven't been following that literature lately. You know, uh, remdesivir was one candidate, one leading candidate, but um, it really isn't a, a cure for the disease. It's not something that even prevents death from coronavirus, but it appears that it, it may have some impact on getting people out of the hospital faster, for example. So the initial reports are that, you know, you get out of the hospital four days sooner than, than somebody not treated with this drug. I would say in, in general, though, I, from what I've heard, and I guess what I've read, that, you know, that there are many drugs in development, various stages of clinical trials. Um, and I would not be surprised if they came up with some more effective treatment or treatments in a very short period of time. So that would probably, that may even happen or probably would happen before we would have the vaccine in place. The uh, vaccine to me is something that is going to be a long way off. And given how little we know about how this virus behaves, it seems like it's going to be uh, fraught with risk trying to hit a moving target, and we'll have to wait and see. Uh, And I know that folks have talked about this notion of herd immunity, and if this particular virus is asymptomatic, we may have a lot more people that are carrying it that just aren't aware. And you wanted to talk a little bit about the testing and contact tracing. So as we wrap up this podcast, I'd like to have you just riff a little bit on, you know, in an ideal world, according to John Heller, what would we be doing policy-wise? And in a nightmare world, what kind of things might we be doing policy-wise? I guess, in my view, it's they're sort of one and the same. uh, In the ideal world, we're, we're mitigating the spread of the disease, and in the in the worst case scenario, we're not. We you know we we we've fully opened uh, opened up and, and gone back to normal, and and the disease spreads very quickly, and there's a uh, a huge resurgence of the disease. You know, the the only tool that we have right now is what's you know broadly referred to as social distancing. Um, you know, there are stay-at-home orders. I think we've moved beyond that, but there's, uh, in most places, uh, but there's, you know, hand washing and, and social or, or physical distancing, so staying apart, uh, six feet apart, and and not uh, congregating in, in places uh, uh, where there are large crowds and so on. Um, so that's that's the, the tool that I think um, can helps to contain the disease. 
But um, you're, you're right. I, the thing I did want to talk about was testing and contact tracing and containing the disease, really, ultimately. If you can get the number of, of infections down so low, the number of cases that you can begin to contain the disease, that would be sort of the ideal situation. And once you're back in this containment phase, you could test uh, as many people as, as are needed. The ideal thing would be to isolate them or quarantine them to keep them from spreading the disease. How would, exactly would that work? And, and let me tell you where some of my confusion around this uh, resides. Uh, they'll say, well, we're going to take everybody's temperature. And I said, well, all right, but... I understand that I could be shedding virus for 14 days right. and infecting people without having a fever or any other symptom. Yep. And that if you're going to test me today with the nasal swab, um, you're talking eight to 10 hours to turn that test around if you have the reagents. And then they've got the rapid test, which purports and I'm holding up air quotes on purports yep. to be able to register a positive in five minutes yep. and a negative in 13 minutes. Right. And I'm watching workers go into the Ford plant today, going into some kind of testing. I don't know what they're doing in there, uh, but I have loved ones that work in the plant. Right. It's a very close environment. And what protections are they getting so that they're not bringing it home and infecting households. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. I, that's what I was trying to get my hands around is how are we testing? And I get it. If we find a positive case, then we can, by some means, figure out who else this person's been around. I don't think we're going to do what mm -hmm. South Korea did, for example, which is everybody had to wear a wristband that had your temperature and your location. And if somebody got infected, there was a digital tracking. They knew exactly who had been exposed. I don't see that working in this country. And yet I've heard that the CDC has hired a lot of contact tracers. Mm -hmm. So do you, do you have any understanding on how the mechanics of the testing or contact tracing would go? I don't know a lot about exactly how the contact tracing is executed, but it what I picture is, you know, they hire thousands of people to basically call up, you know, there's a person with a known infection and, and they know or have some good idea of where they've been and who they've been in contact with. So they call up everybody that's been in contact and potentially exposed to that person. And you might even, I think, even if you don't capture all of those people, um, you know, all of the people in the Ford plant that they've been in, in contact with um, are potentially infected. Um, you're still going to stop a lot of the spread of the disease um, through contact tracing. The, the testing is pretty well understood, the, um, to, at least for the, the sort of the gold standard test, which is a PCR test, as it's called. Um, so there, they're they're looking at the uh, RNA of the virus. It, it, the, these different tests have a known sensitivity and specificity, meaning you know they can tell you about false negatives and po false positives for a particular test. The point of care tests. Well, let, let me back up and, and say that all of the things you mentioned are potential tests. 
testing someone's temperature is a way of screening for someone who's infected. And you can presume, although you don't know, that they have, if they have a high fever, that they have coronavirus, that you, it's quite likely they're infected with something. So that's a test. I, I learned from a colleague of mine that in Canada, they don't even do this kind of PCR testing as a first line of test. They actually go straight to a CT scanner, which I found kind of remarkable. Um, so they take a picture of their lungs and they, they see that they've got these features of coronavirus. So uh, we talk about uh, ground glass opacities, which are these, they look like uh, ground glass in the, in the lungs that, that are kind of a foggy spot of texture in the lungs, a, a single spot. And, and they talk about consolidation, which is a, a feature of pneumonia. The problem with CT testing, because that's a diagnostic test too, is that that doesn't tell you what's causing that pneumonia. But again, you could presume that it's probably coronavirus because there's so many cases around. It could also be the flu or some other, um, some other airborne <laughs> infectious disease that's causing pneumonia or, or this kind of consolidation as it's called. So those are all tests, but the PCR test that I mentioned is the one that is the gold standard. One problem with that is that it, it takes uh, maybe 24 or 48 hours turnaround, um, maybe even longer in some cases because the, the cases can become backed up in, a, in an overloaded healthcare system uh, or have in the past. Um, I know that happened in Missouri, in St. Louis. So the PCR test is, is very accurate, uh, but it's slow. And then you talked about the rapid point of care tests. Those can be done in 15 minutes, but they're not, uh, they don't have the same specificity or, or sensitivity rather. They can't, uh, they, you may miss some cases. Yeah, the White House is using one of the more popular versions mm -hmm. of the quick test and they're right. finding uh, some false negatives. Yes. Um, you know, the CT scan, I can't imagine that would be a permanent policy. Just the radiation exposure alone right. is going to overwhelm people. And not to mention just the cost and the time to get the CT scan. I mean, that's a pretty heavy duty test uh, that, I mean, in a typical, <laughs> uh, well, it's a typical diagnostic you know, you're going to start with a chest x-ray, go to CT, go to MRI. There are methods of reducing the radiation now. So they're trying to get CT exams down to the radiation level of, a, of an x-ray, a chest x-ray. But the CT is much more informative and tells you how bad the disease is or perhaps could even predict how bad the, the disease is going to get. Uh, so, you know, that can help with the interventions. But but you're right. I don't, I don't think especially in the United States, that's, that may be the, I, in fact, the American College of Radiology uh, does not suggest that, that you use CT. There's also problems with um, having to sterilize the scanner you know, once, once patients are, have gone through there, and that can take up to an hour or more. Uh, so it's not a practical solution. But my point was that there, there are many different kinds of tests, and, and you know, something as simple as testing your temperature is, is one of them. Uh, they just have different levels of sensitivity and specificity. Well, John, this has been a you know, fascinating discussion. 
um, I hope to have you back uh, as this uh, pandemic hopefully eases, um, but certainly in a couple of months, I hope we're having a chat about, you know, what the pandemic was like in the past tense. And I hope come fall, we're having the discussion that we're sure glad it hasn't flared up again. But I do believe that uh, we need as a society to be prepared to have capacities to treat it if it does um, and to understand what the policies are. You sort of talked about the, you know, the testing and the contact tracing and the uh, what I referred to as a containment. And that, I think, is is something, you know, I, I mentioned to you uh, earlier that it's sort of the elephant in the room that we haven't talked about quarantine. Uh, so, uh, you know, really isolating people who are infected. So how are we going to um, how are that, that seems to me to be a dilemma or a, a, a difficult question about how will we do this in the future? How will we contain the disease or how will we mitigate its spread? And so once people are identified as being infected or suspected of being infected, how will we contain that disease or, or mitigate the spread? It's hard to, to quarrel with any of that. And I hope that our listeners have found this to be informative. And I hope that if you are in a position in life where you don't need to go out, that means if you're employed and you can work at home, that's a great place to be. Uh, if you are retired and out of the workforce, great place to be is at home. And if you do need to go out, please exercise all the cautions relative to hand washing and social distancing and face masks. And God willing, we'll be back to a semblance of whatever normal is going to look like as we exit this. So you've been listening to The Common Bridge with our special guest, Dr. John Haller. Thanks so much, John. Thank you, Rich. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.